All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. So we got an interesting show for you today. We're going to do something a little bit different. Um, there, is a, there is a tag, a hashtag that has been trending on Twitter uh, over the last you know, several days or so and it said, uh, we are closed. And originally this was talking about very small businesses and whatnot that were saying that they were closed down not because necessarily of COVID restrictions, although that's certainly the case in some places, but the, many of them were closed down because they cannot get people to actually work in the jobs that they're providing. And a lot of this has been chalked up to the fact that there has been such a, a massive amount of money spent on so-called stimulus checks uh, and unemployment benefits that it is actually disincentivizing people to go back to work because they can either make more or they can make a similar amount by just collecting unemployment, um, especially with some of the additional payments and stimuluses, uh, stimulus checks that have come in from the government. And this is this obviously, you know, this line of reasoning makes sense. If, if you are going to pay someone essentially to not work, well, then you're not incentivizing them to actually go out and engage in productive labor. Now, again, a lot of people will argue that, well, that's not enough, unemployment's not enough to live on, or the stimulus checks are not enough to live on, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is when you actually take into account all the different welfare benefits that are out there, um, you can actually make enough and certainly enough to dissuade you from wanting to work. In fact, some of the welfare programs that are set up um, actually discourage you from making you know, too much or otherwise they cut back their benefits in such a way to where they, they disincentivizing you actually advancing uh, within a particular job or career field or whatever it might be. So these businesses are pointing out that, look, the government is now handing out so much money. You've disincentivized work. A lot of those jobs have to do with the food industry, various service industries uh, associated with hospitality and things like that. And so therefore, they, they can't get open because they can't hire people. It's not that the jobs aren't there. It's that people are not willing to work for them at the rates that they're being paid. And so this has caused many on the left to come out and be like, well, no, well, that's your problem. That's the business's problem. See, we've just we've just demonstrated that it's the business owners that are that are evil, and the fact that you can't pay someone enough to get them to give up their unemployment benefits to come to work just shows what a you know horrible wage you're actually paying. So let's break this down because I started to see all these different comments on Twitter, and there was a lot of different angles that the left was hitting this from, and a lot of different arguments that were being made. And I've heard a lot of these arguments, and I know you've heard a lot of these arguments. And so I just wanted to take a moment. We're going to go through this because everyone deals with this. If you're a conservative, you deal with this. You see all this stuff on Twitter or Facebook or on from these talking heads in um, on 
media or on radio, and you, you wonder to yourself, how do I respond to that? Right? Or, or I know that's wrong, but I'm not sure what, what the best response is. So we're going to go through some. Uh, we did kind of a cross-section of the tweets that we saw, and we're going to go through and look at them. So from Red Riot, Red Riot goes, uh, we are closed. If your business refuses to pay more than slave wages, then do us all a favor and go out of business. Americans deserve the dignity of a living wage. All right, so this is a, the common one, right? The living wage uh, aspect combined with the, if you're not willing to pay a living wage, then you don't deserve to have a business. So. What is the philosophical underpinning of this statement, right? It's the idea that Americans deserve the, the dignity of a living wage. That sounds great. I, I don't think you're going to find many people that would look at that and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm against Americans having a living wage, or I don't think that they have dignity. That's not the case. The question is, how do you actually best achieve that, right? And, and what this person is saying is that if you refuse to pay more than slave wages, okay, here's what I would like to know. What is slave wages? Because my study of slavery... Um, didn't include a lot of wages for the slave. I mean, like maybe you know, keeping them alive. And, and maybe that's the argument that he's making here. But once again, you're, you're not defining your terms. You're not telling me what a slave wage is. In fact, I would think it'd be very insulting to somebody that is living in genuine slavery or has lived in genuine slavery to tell them that working at McDonald's as an entry-level position is akin to slave wages, right? That I, I would think that'd be insulting. I think that'd be a little insensitive, but apparently you can get away with it if you're going to make these sort of comments. So again, he's not defining what slave wages is. And uh, again, the, the real question is this, if something is like slave wages, right? Because obviously you can't force anyone to work for you in this country, right? Unless you're the government. The government can actually draft you into the military under certain circumstances and compel you to work for them. And theoretically, you could say every time you got to pay taxes, you're compelled to work from the government uh, on some level, Right. But no private sector business can force you to work for them. So, you know, again, what, what does he mean by slave wages? And, and unless they're willing to actually explain that, then it's not, it's not worth continuing in the conversation. The next part is that you do, you do us all a favor and go out of business. Do us all a favor or, or do you a favor? Because I don't think it's doing a favor for all the people that voluntarily chose to work for the business, that, that were working for that business, that aren't now, not, not because they're paying differently, but because the government has now taxed that business and everybody else working, they've taxed those people, taken their money, or they've gone into additional debt, which means they've taxed future generations in order to pay people in the present. So this whole idea of do us all a favor and go out of business, okay, well, I don't think that's going to do anybody a favor that actually wants that job, right? Or would want that job if the government wasn't paying them to not work. Right, and then the deserve the dignity of a living wage. This is another one I would love for somebody to explain to me. What constitutes a living wage in your mind? That's what I would like you to know. Before you, before you start bludgeoning us all with what a livable, living wage is, I want you to specifically explain what a living wage is. And do you actually understand that a living wage is going to fluctuate based off of where you are in the country? So when the federal government says we're going to raise the minimum wage to $15, or when you have people advocating to others, you realize that's going to have, a, that's going to have like zero effect in New York City. It's going to have a huge effect in Mississippi. Do, do you recognize that a living wage is, is different amounts in different places at different times and, and locations? So again, no, no, part of this, no part of this argument is, is actually rooted in any sort of basic understanding of the economy or why people are not seeking jobs, right? The, the, what they're saying is, well, they just don't want to work for you because you don't pay enough. Okay, again, here's the question. 
Where does the government get the money in the first place that they're paying everybody right now? Right? They, they didn't create that through providing products and services that we all voluntarily paid for. That's not what they did. They got it by taxing. Who did they tax? They taxed business owners and they taxed workers. Right? And if you're in the bottom 50% of the tax brackets, you are a net recipient of federal dollars. You don't pay any federal income taxes when you adjust for all the wealth transfers that go to the bottom, but bottom 40%. So if you're in the top 50%, you pay 97% of all federal income taxes. That is being used in part to fund all these different checks that are now going to people. So if these businesses you don't like go out of business, here's my question. Where do you get the money? All right, let's move on to the next one. <laughs> DKT said, stay on their necks until they offer $25 an hour, what minimum should be considering inflation. <laughs> okay, so apparently $15 an hour is no longer enough. It needs to be $25 an hour. And why does it need to be $25 an hour minimum wage? Because of inflation. So here's a question. If you're concerned <laughs> about rising costs, because I think that's what she's actually talking about is rising costs. Maybe she's talking about monetary inflation too. There's actually differences in those two things. But do you think artificially increasing the price of labor for entry-level positions is going to cause prices to go up or down? I'm guessing up. Because you're going to have to recoup that cost somewhere. And if you artificially increase the cost of labor, then you're going to have to actually charge more for the products and services that you offer. Or you're going to have to fire people. But that's, that's what minimum wage increases do. You are artificially inflating the price of labor. And you are telling somebody that wants to provide a job at a certain rate to a person that is willing to do that job for a certain rate that is now illegal for them to do so. Okay, so if your whole thing is, gosh, I'm really concerned about rising prices and inflation, so we should increase the minimum wage to $25 an hour. Well, I, I got bad news for you. Your solution is going to make the problem you're trying to address even worse. So again, this is someone that just had no concept of either basic economics, monetary policy, or what actually causes price increases within the marketplace. All right, let's look at another one here. Oh, this is one of my favorites. We are closed because we didn't want to pay our, this is from David uh, Hillicord. We are closed because we didn't want to pay our employees a living wage. Our greed got the better of us, signed Corporate America. And then they do an, an FDR quote. It said, in the minimum wage, or if the minimum wage was really never meant to be a living wage, then why did FDR, the president who signed it in the law in 1938, say, no business which depends for existence on paying less than living wages to its workers has any right to continue in this country? Okay, I've actually heard uh, members of the Virginia General Assembly quote FDR on this. Here's the first piece of advice I'm going to get you, uh, give you when it comes to this. Um, if you are arguing for increased minimum wages and more government intervention in the economy, I wouldn't recommend quoting the president that presided over the worst economic depression in U.S. history. The worst, right? Unemployment never went below 10% during the entire FDR administration until World War II when they drafted everyone in the military, right? So, so this idea that FDR is that, and, and he said this in 1938. He came into the presidency in 32, and it was double-digit employment all the way to, to World War II. And here's the fascinating thing. People say, well, he inherited all that. If you go back and look at what happened with the stock market drop in 1929, 
You'll see that the stock market had a, had a horrible day, Black Tuesday, right? Horrible day, stock market crash. But then if you go and you actually look about, what is it, nine months later, unemployment had actually dropped under double digits and the economy was starting to recover. And then what happened? Republican Herbert Hoover, who was a progressive and who believed in government intervention in the economy, passed the Smoot-Hawley tariff and a bunch of government spending programs and interventions into the economy. And then inflation, or excuse me, um, unemployment shot back up. FDR ran on a platform that he was going to rescind all this government intervention. He got in and doubled down. FDR was literally setting the price of gold based off of his lucky numbers. FDR was trying to put tailors and family-owned businesses that sold chickens in jail because they weren't complying with unconstitutional New Deal regulations, which was run by Hugh Johnson, who is a committed fan of Mussolini. So if that's the guy you want to use to justify your position, you go for it. But I'm telling you, his economic record is not going to help you out. And if you look at that statement, no business which depends for its existence on paying less than living wages to its workers has any right to continue in this country. Says who? Says FDR? I got news for you. My first job was working at a pizza place. It did not pay living wages. I didn't need it to pay living wages. You know what I needed it to give me? An entry-level job to make a little bit of money while I was going to school and in order to gain work experience. And I was grateful to have it. And if you would have told me, hey, Nick, sorry, we're closing down that business, or you're going to lose your job because they've got to cut 20% of their workforce because they can no longer afford it in order to keep their products at the prices that people are willing to pay, because some idiot in Washington, D.C. that thinks they know better than everyone else said so, I don't think I would have felt all that grateful for that. Here's an idea. Instead of politicians arrogantly assuming that they're the ones that should be able to determine which countries have a right to continue to exist, why don't we leave that up to people looking for jobs to decide for themselves what sort of job they want? Again, nobody is forcing you to work at a particular rate in this country. We're just not. They're not doing it. So before you get on your high horse as a politician, what an arrogant thing to say. And tell me that, well, that your business doesn't have a right to exist. Why? Because you're not paying a living wage, which I have not defined, nor will I bother to define, because the moment I define it, now I'm fixed to that particular definition. And the moment it doesn't work out the way I'm promising, I'm going to be held to account. That's why they do this crap. So, first of all, <laughs> quoting FDR as, as some sort of you know, legitimate resource with respect to economic policy is absurd given his track record. Absolutely absurd. And if you want more information on that, two books I'm gonna recommend right now. FDR's Folly by Jim Powell, incredibly well-researched book, and The Forgotten Man by Amity Schles. And Amity Schles goes through and, and uh, Powell does more of, it, it's more of what I would consider kind of a, an, an academic approach. So a lot of numbers, a lot of figures, uh, Amity does that as well. It's very well researched, but she, bottom line is that she, she does more of a storytelling narrative. And so in some respects, I, I think it's a little bit easier to, to read. Um, but both of those books do, do an excellent job of actually digging into the numbers within the 1930s and the New Deal and actually addressing, did, did FDR really save us from the Depression or did he help deepen the Great Depression? And, and I'm sorry, the economic analysis is out. And he deepened it and made it worse. 
And the more you read about some of the things that he did, and I'm not just talking about bad economic policy, I'm talking about draconian stuff. Again, he was going to throw the, the owners, the family-owned business, go, go read the, the uh, Schechter chicken case. Throw them in jail. Why? Because they were allowing people to pick their own chickens when they went to go buy them, which was outlawed under New Deal regulations. He wanted to punish and fine tailors because they were offering tailoring lower than what the New Deal required them to do through price fixing. Lower. So, okay, there, there's your great economic savior. There's the guy you want to take advice from when it, when it comes to deciding which businesses can stay in business. So, what a joke. All right, let's look at the next one. Okay, Alt-Gun Gaming, or Alt-Bun alt Gaming. I, I got to tell you, some of these names on Twitter are just incredible. Big corporations, wah, nobody wants to work anymore. We are closed. Me, no, they just don't, don't want to work for a place that doesn't value their employees enough to pay them a living wage, so they have to work multiple jobs while the CEO has a million-dollar home and 10 fancy cars. Okay, this goes back into something I, I, I want to explain about just, again, economics in general and um, working in the labor force. Now, again, I've worked for minimum wage. So if, if anybody's got, if anybody on the left has got the strange idea that I don't know what I'm talking about, I have worked for minimum wage. In fact, if you want to look at the hours that I was putting in with different things I do, and you could argue that at one point I was working for less than minimum wage because I was salaried, All right? Two problems with this. Again, they never define what a living wage is. And two, it's the have to work multiple jobs while a CEO has a million dollar home and 10 fancy cars. Okay. The CEO being wealthy Okay, does, does not mean that you are automatically poorer. That's not what that means. The reason why the CEO of a large company can command a much more significant salary than somebody working at an entry-level position within that same company is because the consequences associated with the decisions that the CEO makes can decide or determine whether or not everyone in that company loses their job. Right? There's significantly more risk involved in hiring for someone. That CEO is also competing against other CEOs for that particular job. And, and the bottom line is, is the businesses have an incentive to pick a CEO or fire a CEO based off of how much wealth they are creating for the company. But who you pick for that CEO can have a drastic overall effect on the profitability of the company, which ultimately affects not only everyone working for that company, it affects everyone that receives products and services for that company, and it, uh, excuse me, it affects everyone that potentially has retirement tied up in that company. So stop with the class warfare garbage. Right now, if you've got a company where the CEO is doing a bad job and he's making too much money, should they be fired? Absolutely. I will not cry a river for one moment, right, for somebody, for a high-level executive that gets fired because they're not doing their job. But by the same token, I'm not going to accept this idea to where if, if someone has earned the sort of pay that they're receiving and, and they've, they've received it through voluntary exchange within the marketplace, it's not my job to tell them how much they should make or how much they shouldn't make. You know who does get to decide that? Consumers. You know who also gets to decide that? Laborers. So in, in this scenario, theoretically, yes, if the CEO is doing a bad job and not taking care of their employees, should those employees leave and go to a different job? Absolutely. But do we have some sort of amazing phenomenon where that's currently happening within the United States? Well, let me ask you something. W was that happening pre-COVID? No. So what changed? Well, a couple of things. COVID, COVID in and of itself had economic um, you know, consequences. 
the government response to COVID, and if you want to go look at the more draconian states that did horrible lockdowns, whether it was New York or California or New Jersey, here's what you find. They didn't yield any real additional benefit, health benefit, discernible health benefit from those draconian lockdowns, but they did punish the crap out of their businesses. And then instead of actually relaxing the sort of regulations and allowing people to actually make decisions so they can continue to operate, the government just wanted to pay a bunch of people to stay home. So that's why people are predominantly staying home. It, I, I'm telling you right now, if, if that business, here's how you know if that business is truly doing a bad job. Stop paying people more to stay home than it is to actually work and see if they go and work. Right? That, that'll tell you right there whether or not that job should exist or not, whether or not that business should exist or not. Or, or here's a better idea. Here's a better idea, Alt-Bun Gaming. If you think everyone else is doing such a horrible job and the, and the real secret to economic and social success here, go out and start a business and hire people and pay them at, at rates above all of your competition. Just do that. I mean, it, 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 if that's as simple as it is, then just do that. All right, let's look at the next one. Tinfoil Tom. This is actually probably one of the most appropriate named Twitter handles. I'm seeing we are closed trending. Maybe if businesses paid a living wage and offered things like healthcare, people would want to work. Nobody should ever have to work two or three jobs just to barely afford to just be alive. Okay, offering healthcare. You want to know why we're in some of the problems that we are with healthcare in this country? It's because, in part, the government raised taxes so much that starting in the 30s, more and more companies started to pool resources in order to offer healthcare in order to entice people to work for them because if they gave you additional pay, Right, that would get taxed at a marginal rate that would pretty much erase the incentive. But they could offer you health care, which was another benefit, and so you could do it that way. And then there, were, there was some utility to being able to get a, um, you know, a bunch of people on one health care plan in order to lower your overall risk associated with the plan. So th there was some free market um, benefits to it. But then the government came in and said, well, we're going to give special tax breaks and advantages to companies that offer the health care. Well, now you're in a situation where you can be trapped in a job, not because you want to stay there, but because you're worried about leaving with respect to what your healthcare benefits look like. And because the government doesn't allow private associations or individuals to simply group together in order to get better rates, they give that special advantage to businesses because that's where they want to tie it to. You don't have as many options as you would otherwise have in the, in the marketplace. And, and every time we try to allow for more options, it gets shut down by government regulators and quite frankly, by certain insurance companies that want to keep their competition from coming in. So, you know, again, and, and here's my question on this thing. If they offered things like healthcare, okay, tinfoil Tom, go out, start a business and offer healthcare. And, and then you deal with all the government regulations that are imposed with respect to insurance companies. You, I mean, go ahead and do it if, if it's just that easy. But no, the, the answer is it's not that easy. And the answer is the government does have a lot to do with actually making it more difficult. And by not taking any of that into account, by just flippantly decreeing that the only reason why this is happening is because businesses aren't doing enough. Give me a break. You should never have to work two to three jobs just to barely afford to just be alive. First of all, syntax is crap. But here, here's the other thing. Again, if, if that's what you truly believe, well, then in, instead of spending all your time on Twitter talking about it, go out and create an economic reality without using the force and coercive power of government. Go out and create an economic reality, start your own business, hire people, and provide the things that you think they deserve. Because I want everybody to have those opportunities. The difference is, is that I'm not so obtuse as to imagine that me 
pontificating on Twitter is enough to actually help create the sort of economic environment that can provide the sort of jobs that you claim you want people to have. All right, next one. All right, this one's from Buttery Brown. The whole we are closed and nobody wants to work anymore tweets are making me smile. It's probably the closest we've come to a labor movement since the early years of the 20th century. You, you mean like during the Great Depression? And corporations made sure to get rid of unions so there was no room for negotiation. Oh my gosh. Who wants to tell her? Who wants to tell her? Unions are not illegal, right? They, they have not been, they've not been kicked out. You, you, unions exist within the United States. Now, the biggest unions are public sector employee unions, which, oh, by the way, your hero, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, your hero, he's the, he didn't think public sector employee unions should exist because he even understood that the whole, por the whole purpose of a union and an employer or business negotiating is that both of them have interests and they're trying to negotiate to find a compromise that works for both of them, right? But in a public sector, the public sector employee unions are not negotiating with the taxpayers, they're negotiating with politicians. And then those public sector employee unions rack up millions of dollars and throw it into the political campaigns of the politicians that will come in and give them favorable negotiations because, again, those politicians are not negotiating with their money, they're negotiating with tax dollars. And that is where you see really the only growth within unions anymore in the United States is public sector employee unions. Only about 7% of the private sector workforce is unionized. And even in those states where they want to trash right to work, which, by the way, here's what right to work says. Right to work says that you can't have an arrangement where someone can be forced to join a union in order to have an employment. There you go. You can't have closed shops, right? And they'll, they'll come back and say, well, in, in right to work states, wages are lower or, you know, workplace things, you know, fatalities are higher. First of all, they're not even comparing apples to apples, right? It's, it's, if you want to look at a, you know, certain right to work states, and you look at some of the industries that take place within those states. I mean, yeah, if someone's a coal miner in a right to work state, that is a more dangerous job just by the nature of it. The idea that they're no longer in a position where they can negotiate is ridiculous. They can still negotiate. What happens is, is in a private sector, you have a lot of places that they don't want to pay union dues. And you know how I know this is true? Is because when the Supreme Court passed a decision that said that you could not automatically force someone to pay union dues, a lot of these unions lost significant amounts. We're like talking over half of the dues that were being automatically expropriated from them, especially in states where they would lose their job if they didn't pay union dues. Right? So spare me. Spare me. If you, if, you actually want, if you actually want a situation, I always say, I don't got a problem with unions. right? What I have a problem with is the government tipping the scale in favor of employers or employees. That is not a negotiation the government needs to be involved in. I can negotiate my wages, and that's what I would like to do. If I would like to team up with other people to do it as well, great. I will team up with anybody who wants to voluntarily team up with me. But I would not dream of forcing someone to join my union. And if the only way that you can make your union successful is by forcing people to join it, otherwise they lose their job, and then taking money out of their paycheck so that you can go and support practices and you can support politicians that that union member might not agree with, well, then something tells me you don't have a very good deal to offer because you're not requiring on voluntary cooperation in order to entice people to join your organization. You're requiring on government coercion and force. That doesn't make you the good guy. All right. Let me see. I think we got, okay, two, two more will be done. All right. I am King Star. We are closed. Yeah, um, I'm not surprised. Like, what the entire hell? 
This is the 21st century and things are going up, including gas prices. $2.95 for gas, almost $3. Increased minimum wage to 15, hour, 15 an hour. It's not hard to do. Well, okay, we're back down to 15 an hour. It was 25 an hour like four tweets ago. So we've got someone else 15 an hour. Why? Because gas prices are high. I go back to this. Clearly, we're not teaching anything resembling basic economics in, in middle school or high school, like just basic economic principles of supply and demand, right? Scar like value is determined based off of scarcity relative to demand, right? Businesses don't just arbitrarily set prices. They have to set prices based off of the cost of their supply relative to the demand of their customer base. That's what ends up setting prices because the moment they rise them too high, customers go away or they find alternatives. If they do it too low, then all of a sudden people buy more of it, they surplus, and then now they have to raise prices in order to make sure that they can buy future stock. So this, again, it's not just as easy as, hey, let's just, I mean, if, if $15 an hour is, is not that hard to do, well then why not 25, why not 100? Why don't we just set prices for everything? Why, why can't we just have the government? Why don't we just have I am Kingstar go throughout the economy and point at things and decide what they should cost? Like it, it seriously, like there's no respect for the role that prices play within an economy. And, and if you want to read something really interesting on this, Ludwig von Mises pretty much decimated what they call the, the socialist calculation problem. Because in, in socialist centrally planned economies, theoretically, if you move to it, you don't really have a price structure. Because production is not based off of demand within a free marketplace. Production is based off of what political central planners determine it's going to be. And so they didn't really have a mechanism for deciding <clears throat> what prices would look like. And so Mises talks about the socialist calculation problem because in a free market, what prices are is, again, it's a reflection of supply and demand concerns. That, that's what it is. That's why it plays that coordinating function. So if you go to the gas station tomorrow and it's, it's $3 a gallon and then you go the next day, it's $5 a gallon, you don't necessarily need to know that the reason why it's $5 a gallon is because the colonial pipeline was hiked. You just know that, oh gosh, if it's $5 a gallon, well then I'm going to drive less or I'm going to buy less gas or I'm going to store up on some gas. I'm going to fill up both of my cars because if it goes up some more, I still need to get to work for the rest of the week and I've got a long commute, right? So because that price went up, you didn't need to know all the factors that went into it. You just needed to know what it meant for you with respect to your intentions and your anticipations with respect to your behavior and preferences, right? So that's the, that's the coordinating function prices play. When the government comes in and artificially increases or decreases a price, it sends perverse signals to the marketplace. It screws things up. It's like a virus in the system. So <laughs> is it not hard to do? Well, no, it's, it would not be hard for legislators to do that. It would just have drastic consequences and it would probably end up having resulting in a lot of people losing their jobs or being barred from entry into the marketplace if we did it. All right, and then we are closed because this is, uh, who cares? Because the U.S. is built on legalized oppression of labor. Oh my gosh. Legalized oppression of labor. I mean, this guy's, this guy's a Marxist. You can tell by oh, some of the other stuff on his Twitter page. Um, I, I love this idea that because not everyone has achieved a particular economic ideal, or, or even a, a, what some people have as a notion of a collective ideal, that therefore that is a result of legalized oppression of labor. Here's all I want to know. Point me to the law. Point me to the law in the book, because that's what legalized oppression means. Point me to the law in the book that allows for the legalized oppression of labor. Because last time I checked, 
as I, as I look at the laws, and believe me, I've, I've seen a lot of laws with respect to labor relations. I don't see anything. I don't see anything, not a single code on the books, that could be considered legalized oppression of labor. I do see a lot of stuff that tips the scale in favor of labor over employers. Maybe you think that's good, maybe you think that's bad. But to say that we're built on legalized oppression of labor, please. I mean, please. Um, so look, that's our little, that's our little stroll for through the Twitter verse today. Here's what this all comes down. Let's go ahead and sum this up. Um, economic rules are what they are. Okay, this is not something that Republicans came up with. It's not something that Democrats came up with. These are observations about reality and human nature. When you go to the store, you want to buy a product at the best price possible, at the best quality you can get for the price that you can afford. When you go into the workplace, you do the same thing with respect to your labor. If you own a business, you do the same thing with respect to hiring people. You want to get the best price for the labor that they're willing to offer in order to do the, the job that you need done. So it doesn't matter where you are. If you're the employee, you want the best price for your labor. If you want the employer, you want the best price you can get for labor. If you're the customer, you want the best price you can get for the product and the service. So everyone is balancing price with quality. It's what everyone does. I don't care which role, because the bottom line is most people play at least two of these roles, employer and consumer. Some people have played all three, employer, consumer, and employer, right? But these are just basic laws of economics. If you artificially cause, cause the price of something to go up, like labor through minimum wage laws, you will have less demand for the thing that you made more expensive than you otherwise would have. What you will also do is you will cause ripple effects throughout the economy. There'll be increased prices for products and services in order to make up for the additional labor costs. Or people will automate more and they will fire people because they cannot afford the additional costs for the products and services because their customers won't do it. They'll find an alternative or they'll go somewhere else. These, these rules are not, I mean, you don't even need to say they're, you don't even need to talk to them in moral terms. And, and, I, and I'll see people every once in a while politicians say, this isn't about economics, this is about people. Ladies and gentlemen, the economy is nothing more than people working together in order to produce goods and services, overcome challenges, achieve things with one another. That's what the economy is. It's not an engine. It's not a thing the government controls. It's us. So when you say this isn't about economics, this is about people, you clearly don't understand either economics or people. But the thing I'm getting a little bit tired of is watching this sort of moralizing from people that claim to care claim to care, but will not take just, I don't know, an hour to read through a halfway decent book like Economics in One Lesson or Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. I, I won't even ask you to read Human Action by Ludwig von Mises. That one's a monster, but it's, out, it's outstanding. But understanding about basic economic principles is not something that you do in spite of people, it's something that you do for people. Because if you really want people to be able to have a good job, there's certain basic rules you got to follow to do that, right? You got to make your you got to make your labor competitive in the marketplace. The Brookings Institute listed three things that you do: get married, get a job, keep a job, don't have kids until you're actually married and and can afford to have kids. 
right? Just, just stay in a healthy relationship, get a good job and be consistent with it. And you will not live in poverty in the United States. It's like less than a 3% chance. If you do those three things, you will live in poverty in the United States. But if you think that there is a shortcut to economic reality through legislation, well, there's no shortage of politicians that will promise you that. But as Thomas Sowell once said, when people start to expect from government things that it cannot possibly accomplish, then only liars will suffice as candidates. And what I'll tell you is that if we are being governed by a group of liars who either out of dishonesty or sheer ignorance dressed up as compassion, refuse to understand the economic realities that do govern the way that we exchange and interact with one another, if that's what we end up with, I'm telling you right now, it's not just going to be the rich people you despise that will hurt, be hurt from that. It will be everybody, and it will especially be the people that can't afford to leave. So let's do better. That's one of your favorite statements, right? Let's do better by understanding reality and then creating this sort of free market environment where people can rise above their circumstances and are not dependent upon politicians for the very bread on their table. All right, I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you once again for joining us. Like, subscribe, comment. We've had some actually, we had some good conversations on YouTube, some good conversations on Facebook. So if you ever want to jump into that conversation, ask some questions, let us know. Every, every once in a while, I can't go to sleep. It's one o'clock in the morning and I just start, you know, going through and, and responding. So uh, hope to hear from you soon and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.